0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. From Exodus 16, verse 1, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people and In the evening, quail came upon and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "'What is it?' For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "'It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you one.' "'as much as he can eat. "'You shall each take an omer "'according to the number of the persons "'that each of you has in his tent.' "'And the people of Israel did so. "'They gathered some more, some less. "'But when they measured it with an omer, "'whoever gathered much had nothing left over, "'and whoever gathered little had no lack. "'Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, "'and Moses said to them, "'Let no one leave any of it over till the morning.' "'But they did not listen to Moses.' Some left part of it till the morning and bread, and it bread it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they might see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. O oh, gracious Heavenly Father, feed us today. Show us your mercy, we pray. And Perhaps more miraculously, open our hearts to receive your mercy amidst our urgent needs, our anxieties, our sin, our bereavements. By your Holy Spirit, show us Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning and worship with this church. I have dear friends uh, who have served here over the years, uh, as Ari mentioned, Eric Landry, another friend, Dan Warren. And so it's very special to, to be able to join uh, with you all. It's a privilege to share God's word with you. Uh, today, we're jumping into the middle or. uh, uh we're jumping into Exodus. Exodus sixteen is where we find that God provides for His people's needs with manna, heavenly bread. Uh, we're jump. We're jumping in at an interesting point in Exodus. Uh, Exodus uh, about of the third a third of the way into the book. Uh, the early chapters leading to chapter sixteen tells tells a story of how God hears the cries of His people in their bondage and slavery rivals the oppressive reign of Pharaoh, and miraculously frees his people from bondage. Now, this is, that is often the climax of most theatrical tellings of the story of Moses and Israel. That's, that's usually the end, right? The evil tyrant is defeated against all odds. The underdog is victorious. But in a very real sense, as Israel's time in Egypt closes, their story is just beginning, One quick thing to note in Exodus, in chapter 4, we see that Yahweh refers to the children of Israel as his beloved son. Israel is his beloved son. Now, Yahweh has freed him from his captivity, and he's going to raise him up. God is going to do the difficult work of training him, of developing him, and nurturing his people so that they can be a living testimony and light to the nations and model and pattern their lives around God himself rather than their oppressors. And that's what's happening here in our passage. In the wilderness, God is training and raising up his people to model and pattern their lives around God himself rather than Egypt. And we see that through at least three points in this passage. passage, we'll see that one, God cares about our physical nourishment. Two, that God cares about our spiritual and moral nourishment. And three, that God cares about our wilderness. So God cares about our physical nourishment. Verses one through four, it says, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. so 30 days have passed in the wasteland after crossing the Red Sea, which makes you begin to wonder about supplies. How long could things have lasted for for this multitude of people? Uh, You can kind of picture morale start to go down dwindle. The enthusiasm uh, of people on the trek starts to dwindle, right? They're not really making comments about the scenery. They're not really remembering of of the the, the miracles anymore. It's It's a demoralizing kind of scenario. In the previous chapter in Exodus, talks about the bitter waters of Marah, right? And and the text there says the people, again, murmured. This is kind of a general grumbling toward Moses. But in this case, we hear hear what their murmuring is. We hear what their grumbling is. We hear what they're saying. Last time their target was Moses, but now it's Moses and Aaron. And quite astonishingly, they express longings for Egypt, their old home. They would uh, rather be well-fed slaves than free men, Starving to death. Now, you might think that the beloved son of Israel, the children of Israel, might act as spoiled children, entitled in this passage, considering all that God has done. But that's not exactly how the narrative depicts them in this chapter. Um, No, the wilderness passages are are more interesting. They're more profound than that. Think about this. See, if you study early uh, modern history... Uh, Or modern history, especially early 20th century history, um, you will notice uh, this depiction of a populace might make more sense. Consider fascism, Nazism. How could, after hundreds of years of modern advances in science, education, and culture, how could after all these advances, suddenly give rise to not only the ideology of something like Nazi Germany, but the embrace of Nazi Germany by normal, average European citizens. The answer is hunger, poverty, class struggles perhaps. Some writers have pointed out that fascism as the way it's depicted in stories like Star Wars uh, with the empire, or Lord of the Rings with Mordor. They, those stories kind of miss something important. See, in history, commoners didn't always openly resent their oppressive overlords. Precisely the way fascism works is that it, it uh, in, commoners enthusiastically end up embracing it. In those stories, all the commoners basically hated their leaders, but in real life, the average person becomes unable or unwilling to see their leaders and movement's absurdities and evils, and then those become celebrated as good. Fascist and authoritarian types of governments don't really, they don't just drop out of the sky. They lean into the concerns of the people. They prey on the fears of the people. They do not immediately show themselves straightforwardly as evil. No, they manipulate their people by preying on their fear. But we don't, now we don't exactly know what kind of propaganda Pharaoh was using on the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. They were crying out after all. But they were fed. They had their bare necessities, if you will. And what the narrator here is showing us that in the manipulation manipulation, and immense distress caused an experience in Egypt, it's that that runs deep. It runs deeper than Israel knows, especially on a good day. On a good day, Israel is happy to be following the Lord, but the sin of Egypt has marked them. It's hiding, and it needs to be drawn out. It needs to be snuffed out. But how? And that's the question. Obviously, the Scriptures tell us that God is more than able to provide for His people, but when you don't know where your next meal will come from, and it's been days, faith and trust wither. It deteriorates. As one commentator sympathized with Israel in Exodus 16, saying, and when life is jeopardized by lack of food, all else is un- unimportant, right? When you're in a sur- survival survival mode, you're base, you're res- you result to base instincts. But notice that in this passage, immediately after the harsh criticism of Moses and Aaron, right? The children of, of Israel blame them, not God, right? Moses and Aaron, they typed in their own GPS coordinates or something. But notice that instead of an immediate rebuke, what does God do? Verse 4, it says, God says, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, and I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. When Israel wished that they had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, what that means is that they're wishing that instead of being taken through the Red Sea, they wish they had been struck down with the Egyptians and the signs and wonders, the plagues in Egypt. That would have been a better fate than starving to death in the desert is what they're saying. But God's response is utterly merciful. He does not even correct the way they express their need in anger or blame. No, 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 no. He, he regards it as a plea for help. And in, Mo, and in verse 7, Moses says, in the morning they'll see the glory of, of the Lord, but moments later the Lord's glory appears in the cloud. It flares up like a volcanic fire that they'll see, similar to what they'll see at Sinai. And it makes you wonder if his wrath right, has been kindled but he's not angry in the cloud. He receives the complaint. He hears it as a plea for help. And I think we do well to recognize this in this story because God does have a law, He does have expectations on His people. And as we will see in the coming chapters in Exodus, um, those expectations are. To be demanded of his people. But as a good father, he knows when his children's tantrums are cries for help and when they're acts of belligerence. He knows the difference. Mere spiritual platitudes won't do when one is starving, they won't do in the desert. See, before God, or before they can even begin to have the faculties and imagination necessary to receive God's word, God's instruction, they need to be fed we need to be fed. God cares about that. And our modern world today, while we may not be starving in this room this afternoon, this, this morning, um, nevertheless, our modern world can absolutely quench us in other ways that are often debilitating. Uh, the 19th and 20th century Reformed theologian Herman Bovink, he says, he says this, he says, herein lies the thought That the Christian religion does not exist merely in words, in a doctrine, but that it is a work of God in, in word and fact, which was accomplished in the past, is being worked out in the present, and will be fulfilled in the future. The content of the Christian faith is not a scientific theory, nor a philosophical formula of an explanation of the world, a recognition and confession, but it is a recognition and confession of the wonderful works of God. This is not generally and sufficiently recognized any longer, Bavink says. All those preparing for or who are employed in any profession are under such heavy demands today that there's no desire or time left for other kinds of work. Life has become so rich and broad on all sides that an overview of it cannot be a- obtained except by great exertion, political, social, and philanthrop- uh, philanthropic in- Interests require more of our time and energy by the day. The reading of daily and weekly newspapers, of magazines and brochures, devours our every blink, he says. There's a lack of desire and opportunity for the investigation of Scripture. He said that at the beginning of the 20th century. In her seminal essay, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, Anne Helen Peterson describes how millennials struggle so much with daily tasks, from being able to text friends back, uh, from being able to do basic things like paperwork, and how they, they end up resulting just binging the same show on Netflix over and over and over again. In her essay, she says, financially speaking, most millennials lag far behind where our parents were when they were our age. We have far less saved, far less equity, far less stability, and far, far more student debt. The greatest generation had the depression and the GI Bill. Boomers had a golden age of capital. Gen X had deregulation and millennials. We've got a 2008 financial crisis, the decline of the middle class and the steady decay of stable and full-time employment for side hustles and side gigs instead. See, in 2023, young adults do not have institutions generally in employment or life and practice, where we simply join in. We don't simply buy a home. We don't simply save for retirement or go on a yearly vacation. No, all those things have kind of become puzzles to be hacked. Here are seven tips to pay off your student debt on time. Here's five ways to maintain a full-time job and 100 side gigs so you can retire before you're 100. And here are 10 jobs nursing moms can do on their phones between 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. It's just everything is this puzzle to be figured out. And Bob Hink says, life has become so rich and broad on all sides that an overview of it cannot be obtained except by great exertion. So how do we elevate our eyes? How do we elevate our hearts and our minds beyond the immediate urgent needs to receive the transcendent things of God? God when life is suffocating. Well, the good news is that the Lord does not leave us. He does not just command down to us to figure it out, to figure out how to survive on our own in the wilderness. No, He feeds us because He cares for us. God cares about our physical nourishment. Point two, God also, He cares about our moral and spiritual nourishment. And so God he provides his, his people, provides for them in a miraculous way again. He sends hordes of quail, which are historically native to the region, but fully, break, fully baked bread, not native to the region. They don't, it doesn't grow on trees. Healthy sourdough starters don't even grow on trees for that matter. No, this is a very extraordinary, a very special means of God's provision. But when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it?" For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat—Heavenly bread." People don't know what it is, so that's that's what they call it, manna. Manna is a is an archaic Hebrew word which means, "What is that?" It's not fancy. It's not a flattering word. Um, no, it's ordinary what does this have to do with training up Israel, right? What does this have to do with excising and drawing out the influence of Egypt from them? Well, remember, in verse four, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Manna becomes their bread for that day. It's not preservable. Now, remember, in the storehouses of Egypt in Genesis, during the story of Joseph, in the midst of drought and years of devastating weather, Egypt stored and preserved food. And what did Egypt eventually do? They leveraged their supplies over other nations. They had the resources everyone needed, and they milked it for all it was worth. One Jewish commentator says, Israel's behavior highlights a critical issue for any political order, even one founded by the Lord, the permanent restiveness in the human soul regarding the necessities of life, the fear of scarcity and anxiety about getting enough. If not properly acknowledged and addressed, this anxiety can lead to grabbing all you can, hoarding what you have, and coveting what is your neighbor's. It can even lead to selling yourself into bondage for food, as the people here imagine doing. It can also lead to rebellion, war, plunder, ugly methods of gaining subs- substance. Do hmm. you see what the Lord is doing to his people? Manna is for that day and that day alone. It is not preservable. In the wilderness, God is weaning Israel off of the stupor and the temptation, the logic, the practices of Egypt. And he does that by giving them non-preservable bread. Verse 16 says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. See, the implication here is that there's enough for everyone. The Lord has given them individually as families what they need. Leon cast the Jewish scholar I mentioned earlier, again says this, This principle does more than satisfy hunger. It also teaches people how to examine their desires. To follow it, you have to know what your needs are. In the absence of scarcity, we are thrown back on ourselves. We have an opportunity to curb our excess wants and to align our desires with our true needs, including those that might be peculiarly ours. We acquire moderation, that wisdom and measure embodied in our trained appetites. So God meets his children's needs. And this is where the training comes in. God then helps us to examine our desires, because what happens when we don't? As we see, people left some manna out, it's spoiled, it was filled with bread and worms and it stank, but God promised that what they saved on the sixth day would not spoil, and it didn't, but people still went out on the seventh day to gather. On On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. And then they rest. See, there's so much to say here that's interesting and important, but I just want to focus on a few things. To recap, when Israel cries out, even in anger, God discerns their cries as pleas for help and mercifully meets their needs and provides for them. And he does so in a way that forces them to examine their desires and to acquire the virtue of wisdom and of moderation. No one is going to leverage God's gifts and store food and sell it at a premium later. That kind of economic logic will not do in God's economy. No one is going to be tempted to practice the patterns and economics that was taught to them in Egypt, but as we see... They don't trust God's provision. Their scarcity mindset and distrust outweigh their faith, and they act on that. And so God has shown them that those marks of bondage, the logic of Egypt, is still impressed upon them. It's still in them. And it's only after the people disobey in the face of God's provision that you see God's frustration vented. Why? Because God's law is not some arbitrary list of rules he wants you to keep. It's not a random thing. His law keeps us in accord with what is good, true, and beautiful, with what we are made for. Practices that meet our needs and help us to flourish. But if we turn to our own devices, if we begin to shrewdly plot our advantage by taking more than we have been given, by refusing to rest... We begin to take up practices that will enslave us, that will destroy us. We begin to covet and hoard, overindulge. See, Israel fails the test for them. They have set forth an example of disobedience, as the author of the Hebrews says. Israel's problem, your problem, my problems, run deeper than we know. We don't just need new models. And patterns to follow. We may not be Israel in the desert, but these things were written down for our instruction because we also think that the next thing we need in life is just a better management system. We just need to be more shrewdly, to shrewdly leverage our, our resources at our disposal, and then we'll feel like our lives are buoyant, are stable, are cared for. We've bought into one of the biggest myths in the modern life that technique and efficiency is all we need to fix what is ailing us. If only I can get better at this, if only I can be more proficient at that, if only I can save up this much, if only we can reach this next milestone, then I will feel okay. We're constantly nervous about our scarcity we are constantly comparing our quality of life with others. It's a vicious cycle. And we completely forget that just like the birds of the air that do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Don't worry if it's not what you might like it to be in the future, or that it's not the same as what other has, what others have. Don't worry. Has he not given you your provision today? Israel failed the test, but if we, if we are alone in our wilder, in our shrewdness, if we're alone in our talent and our resourcefulness, we are not more righteous than they are. We failed too. But God cares about our temptation. See, our temptation on one hand is to fight and strive for our survival, to gather all we can. But if we do so without moderation, we become Egypt. We become enslaved to the urgent and the immediate needs around us. But on the other hand, if we're, tempt- we're also tempted, to just sort of give up, right? Give in to the pointlessness of life. You've led us out to this wasteland to starve and die. It's a kind of nihilism. But those are not our only options. In our distress, God is raising our heads to the heavens to hear from Him. In the Gospels, we see another beloved Son of God led into the wilderness and endure testing, don't we? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10, that Israel passed through the Red Sea and was baptized and then sent out into the wilderness. At Jesus' baptism, after Jesus rose through the water, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then what happened? The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. See, God did not tempt Israel. His test showed them that they were still tempted by the practices and patterns of Egypt. And listen, all this might sound nice and tidy, right? Jesus is better and greater. He succeeds where Israel fails, voila. But don't miss what's happening here. Don't miss the person of Jesus. Yeah, he succeeds in the wilderness. He does not succumb to temptation. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And in John 4, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' daily bread is to do the will of the Father. But his mission, and this is so vital, is not just following the rules that no one else can. It's not just a checklist. No, while he acts as the obedient son, how how does he do it? He does it as a high priest who is able to sympathize with, with our weaknesses, as one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus did all he did for you so that we would be able to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, so that we know can know that we can find and receive mercy and grace in time of need. So how do we elevate our eyes, our hearts, and our minds beyond the immediate and urgent? This is how. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness where we fail so that, not just to say, see how I did it, now you do it. No, he does so so that he can meet us in mercy amidst our grumbling, amidst our disillusionment, our exhaustion, our hunger. He cares for us and sympathizes with us so that we can have confidence, that we can find and receive a mercy and grace and help in time of need. He's tasted the desolate. He's asked, are you sure this is the way? But in the garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The Lord does not just leave us and come down to us to figure it out. No, he feeds us, not only by giving us bread, but by giving us his body, by becoming broken for us himself. When we give ourselves over to the practices and ways that consume and destroy us, he takes our brokenness and sin into himself and allows himself to become broken so that we can become whole. He cares for you. He knows how suffocating and all-consuming the world is of our attention and our affections. But He constantly sustains you. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying Add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. He gives us our daily bread. And what's more, and quite mysteriously, he gathers us together on his day of rest, and he once again gives us not just daily bread, heavenly bread. But you, this congregation, this church is in a season, searching for a new lead pastor to give you that heavenly bread, to administer the sacrament of the Lord's table to you And it can, I'm sure, often feel confusing. It can often feel like, Lord, where have you led us out into this wilderness? At the end of chapter 16, the Lord instructs that an omer of manna be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That manna didn't perish. It was sustained by the word of God as a sign of his care for his people when they need it at most. When we gather and we receive the Lord's Supper, God is also giving us an imperishable sign. A sign that says, I have brought you out of your bondage to to, to sin. I have not brought you to where you are in your life to die. I have not brought you this far to leave you in desolation. I have not brought you into the life that you are experiencing to forsake you. I have redeemed you, cleansed you, and I am training you up. I am guiding you. And that good work will be completed in you on the day of Jesus Christ. He has brought you this far to feed you, to care for you. Even if you stomp and scream and huff, take and eat, he's asking you to take and eat. He says, even if you stomp and scream and huff, you will know my love. You will know you are cared for. So that's what we pray for today, to receive the faith, to know and cling to God's caring promise. Let's receive God's mercy today. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you sustain us with our daily bread and you nourish us with the heavenly bread, the righteousness of Christ given to us that we receive by faith. We are utterly dependent on you. Forgive us for our sin, for thinking that our shrewdness, our resources are what keep us safe and stable. Forgive us, Lord. We know we are completely dependent on you, so now provide for us continually Help us worship you as we sojourn, as we long for the day to recline and eat at your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.